welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Merry Christmas. Boy. What a great season. We're going to look again at 1 Thessalonians and uh, the narrative that we've been following. We just finished chapter 2 as we departed this last Sunday. And the Apostle Paul had expressed an eager desire, uh, a strong desire to return to that church to visit the Thessalonians uh, that he and his ministry partner named Silas had, uh, had planted. Yet under his current circumstances, if you remember from last week, uh, we are told that he was hindered by Satan from doing so. Clearly, Paul had not given up hope in, in the potential of returning to Thessalonica. Uh, he had not quit making attempts at seeing them again. Uh, and it is possible, it's quite possible, maybe even probable, that Paul did make it back uh, to the church in Thessalonica. We aren't given specifics, but in Acts chapters 19 and 20, Paul on his third missionary journey, a future journey, returns to this region of Macedonia uh, and visits the churches there, strengthening the churches. So it is actually possible that Paul uh, eventually did make it back to Thessalonica. Either way, Paul assured the church of the Thessalonians in our passage last week, this would be in verse 19 of chapter 2, that he would surely be reunited with them, even if that were not to occur until the second advent or the second coming of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, uh, we read that Paul was telling them, uh, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For this reason, Paul can assure uh, that even if I don't get back to see you, I'm going to see you. I'm eventually going to see you on that day that Christ returns and it's all guaranteed to happen, he says, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. That's what he's excited about, uh, Paul, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not for the first time as an infant, uh, but the last time as a lion. Folks, the same is just true for all of us who are Christian. We will be reunited to our brothers and sisters in Christ we're told in chapter 4 uh, that will happen when the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, at that occurrence, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Then He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. Those are comforting words. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 
The second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and in verse 1, also describes this same parousia or coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. And in verse 2 assures this will all occur on the day of the Lord. So Christians are, are very much looking forward to our gathering together again with Christ on that day. Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, they're comforting reminders given to the church that there will be a day of full restoration. Full restoration where we are reunited to our families, to other Christians and friends from our churches like Jerry. We are going to see him on that day. The Lord has mercy and we will all in Christ be reunited again. Yet as Paul states in this letter, our reunion is yet future. It's in the future. In the meantime, in the meantime, we're going to find ways to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to persevere until that day, uh, even when times get really tough. And the Thessalonian church had seen some tough times. Paul not knowing when or even if he's going to be personally be able to return to Thessalonica, nonetheless he takes action. He sends an ambassador, uh, his protege, a young man named Timothy. He does so as an act of kind of goodwill, a goodwill ambassador to check in on them. And that is where in our passage I'm going to now read to you. Uh, it's where we learn about this work of Timothy beginning in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3. There Paul writes, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the Gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that none of no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, Paul writes, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Well, Paul desperately longed to discover how this church was faring, how they were doing. And if you recall from last week, he felt like these, these new converts in Thessalonica I felt as if they had been left like orphans, remember? Felt like he left them behind like orphans as he was forced to flee uh, from the, the civil magistrates. They had already endured, we learn in chapter 1, they had endured much tribulation at the hands of, of the Jews in this situation who had employed the civil authorities uh, to go out and arrest these new Christians. Um, prosecute, persecute uh, these Christians. And in verse 3, Paul wants no one to be uh, disturbed by these afflictions. Don't be disturbed by these afflictions. 
The Greek term there that we often translate as disturbed, it implies to be bent over. Even to be bent over backwards. It means to, to recoil in fear at what they had endured. Uh, Paul says, don't do that. Don't bend over. Uh, once again, these afflictions that we see, that we read about in Thessalonica, verse 3, uh, it is what we now have become familiar with. Uh, the term in the Greek is thalipsis or tribulation. It's the same term. Uh, so when Paul continues by saying, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this, what is it that they have been destined for? They've been destined for afflictions. They've been destined for tribulations. And he assures Christians, this is where our destiny lies. Um, one of the reasons that we kind of wince, that we kind of recoil at the words of Paul, at the sound of these words, is because we in America have always been reassured again and again, time and again, that we're not destined for any tribulations. We're Americans. We aren't destined for any afflictions. Yet as Paul and Silas are shown here in, in the Bible, we find especially in Acts chapter 14, uh, they were returning to many of these churches that they had planted. They were in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Derby and all of these cities where they had preached Christ. And Acts 14 tells us they, they returned there and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, well, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Paul does the same with these Thessalonian believers as he did in, in Antioch and Derby, And he draws their memory back to the time where they had first met, the first occasion together. Uh, verse 4, Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know, and in, in this way, the, these early Christians, they were to recognize that the threats of intimidation that they experienced, their, their subsequent arrests as they were hauled into court by civil authorities, uh, they were not to be interpreted as if you know, some strange thing were happening to you. As the Apostle Peter said, this fiery ordeal. It isn't as if something strange is happening. Uh, rather, persecution was to be recognized and embraced as a very common occurrence among these churches. So common that Paul describes it as their destiny. Think about that. And because this was their destiny... Paul wanted to provide them with as much advanced notice, uh, enough warning that they would be emotionally and spiritually prepared to withstand the pressures when tribulation comes. Paul wanted them to be ready 
in the early churches. It's one of the contributing factors as to why myself as a pastor am so concerned that the church be told always to be ready. Folks, we need to be ready when tribulation comes to America. And I don't want any of us to be sitting back wondering about a fiery ordeal which comes upon you, Peter says, for your testing as if some strange thing were happening to us. Um, Paul describes this type of affliction as a Christian destiny. You remember that Jesus told his disciples, when the world hates you, it hated me first. They nailed him to a cross. But in God's plan, he bore the sins of the world on the cross for us. And it was God's plan all along. So the afflictions that Christ endured were for our benefit. And the gospel teaches us this is all good. Your sins now are forgiven through my sinless Son. And He has risen from the dead, we know, uh, calling all men and women to repent and trust in Him. That's good news. That's the Gospel. When tribulation comes, it's not always such an affliction. I hope that we can all keep our hearts and minds ready ready for what we will experience. Because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when we get there in just a few months, um, it's going to describe for us a, a great spiritual apostasy. Apostasy means a falling away. 2 Thessalonians is going to describe a great falling away and apostasy um, before Christ returns. There will come, there will arise a a counterfeit Christianity that elevates the desires of men over the desires of God. Boy, that's hard to believe, huh? That could never happen. (sighs) And that passage there in 2 Thessalonians states how it will be a deluding influence so that the people will believe what is false. But by God's Word, that destiny too will happen. Uh, And we who hold fast to the truth, we who are prepared for that day, we are destined uh, to be negatively impacted by it. As we stand for the true Gospel. As uh, man has created another Gospel. There exists a a thin silver lining about Uh, our being destined for these tribulations if you want to call it that a thin silver lining Um, that particular word destined it doesn't require a continuous level of persecution to be suffered by all Christians everywhere in every location and every age this passage doesn't require that. There are to be variations in the levels of persecution uh, to be expected by those who inherit this same destiny. It isn't always consistent 
for all Christians and all churches. There's a theolo uh, theologian named G.K. Beale. Uh, he's a president of Reformed Theological Seminary out in Dallas. Um, he makes this comment about this particular word, destiny. He says, quote, The time of tribulation will continue until the final advent of the Messiah uh, so that the lives of Christians during the interim will be characterized by trial. They'll be characterized by trial. Uh, he says, This has come about by God's sovereign hand and has been planned from long ago. Such suffering tests the metal of a true believer, he says. Then he continues, the only pathway leading to the eternal kingdom is one lined with trials through which believers must steadfastly pass in order to finally enter in. He says, Paul is not thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church will return to normality. He says, normality for the church is persecution. So when telling Christians they are destined for tribulation, Paul intends to, to remind them this is normal. Right? This is typical for the Christians. Affliction has been normal for true Christians of every age. But what this term does not demand, this is important, what this term does not demand is that every Christian must endure severe affliction in order to prove that we're Christian. You follow me? What this term does not demand is that every Christian endure severe affliction in order to prove that we're Christian. It does imply that persecution and imprisonment, uh, they are not essential be called Christian. Uh, some Christians, folks, this is good news too. Some Christians have lived some very peaceable lives. Some very good and peaceable lives. Um, most of us have. Most of us have. Uh, but what this destiny does indicate to those of us who aren't experiencing affliction, it's that our experience is abnormal. It's not typical for the church. Um, compared to the, the afflictions and the testing and the trials of genuine Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, and contrasted really to the typical experience of Christians today who live around the globe in many nations that are very harsh towards the gospel, uh, compared to them, our, our American experience, let me tell you, our American experience of religious liberty, it's abnormal. It's abnormal. It's unusual and rare to be living in such a period and in such a place of religious tolerance. But we're nowhere guaranteed by the Word of God that it will continue, that there will be continuing tolerance for what are our views. Um... I believe the appropriate response, very honestly, is to be very thankful to God. Very thankful that we live in a, in a country, in a nation that allows us to preach the gospel, invite people to freely come to Christ for forgiveness of sins. We are very, very blessed 
very blessed in America. Um, I don't have a martyr complex at all. In fact, I don't even like pain at all. I really don't. I don't enjoy it. But at the same time, we need to realize that American Christians are not better nor more spiritual than Christians in China or in North Korea uh, who are not permitted to freely gather and exercise their faith and places where many Christians suffer. Our experience is different according to God's sovereign plan, but we are nowhere uh, told we are better because we aren't suffering tribulation. Um, actually, it's probably healthier for us. It's probably healthier to suspect that our interpretation of Scripture, the way that we look at Scripture and view it, um, it's clouded by our experience of prosperity in where we live. Sometimes we aren't just reading Scripture right. We're taking our experience of prosperity and thinking, this is what a Christian's supposed to enjoy. No, no it's not. And that's not what Scripture says. Uh, we, we also need to recognize that wealth and, um, and prosperity has greatly hindered spirituality in America. It's made us weaker in many ways by not having to strive for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Um, folks, lar large segments of the church are very weak here in the West. Very weak. Um, we can be very selfish. I'm including myself in this. Uh, spending more money on ourselves than those who need relief. Christians overseas, as we saw in our scripture reading earlier, as Titus was sent to take money to impoverish Christians around the globe to, re to relieve their suffering. We aren't as good at that as we should. Um, the prosperity gospel that all Christians everywhere should always prosper and be rich and, and healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, that's being exported now. That false gospel is being exported around the world. It teaches us that we can both keep all of our possessions and follow Jesus. Well, you don't get that from the Bible. No way, no how. That is all a lie. We've never been told that we are destined to never have to endure tribulation. We broadly have believed it. Um, folks, folks, that's just not what the book says. It's not. Um, the evidence of being a genuine Christian is not wealth and prosperity. It's enduring hardship, as did Thessalonica for the gospel, yet still persevering through it. When that hardship comes, if that is God's plan, holding tightly, holding fast to what we believe. That's the test of being a Christian. Because verse 4 states, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, says Paul, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Think of that. The apostles concerned that the work he had put into the church might have been in vain. 
So Paul sent Timothy to inquire into whether they had withstood the persecution intact. Because if they hadn't, and if the tempter had succeeded in tempting them to apostatize and to abandon the faith, Paul says, that would be an indication that what we invested in you was empty. Concerning Satan's temptation, another theologian named G.L. Green, he writes this. He says, quote, The temptation of the tempter was not simply to commit some sin or sins, but to rather commit the sin of apostasy. Which implies in this context, he says, by the references to their stability and continuance in the faith. Paul wanted them to beware of not forsaking the faith. And Green continues, the issue, the, the issue in view that they were talking about here, the issue is not only a moral lapse. Ah, I made a bad, bad move. I sinned. We all do that. The issue here, he says, is not only a moral lapse, but continuance in the faith. What was at stake was the salvation of the Thessalonians. He writes, Paul knew the machinations or the machinery of Satan, the tempter. But he was unsure whether he had met with success in Thessalonica. And our efforts might, efforts might have been useless, he says. Uh, the temptation, while inevitable, was resistible. But the possibility of apostasy was a clear and present danger. Boy, do we want to be prepared? Do we want to be aware of what we might face and the need to persevere as Christians no matter what comes? Oh, we do. The Apostle Paul feared that the Thessalonians who had endured much tribulation might have been tempted to abandon Christ. And if they had, Paul said, this would have been proven uh, that his labor among them was in vain. Boy, I was thinking about this again this morning. Thinking about Do you think that it can sometimes be difficult to discern whether somebody is truly a Christian? The Apostle Paul here is laboring intensely over it. Wanting to know, have you endured? Have you endured? And, and he's willing, the Apostle Paul is willingly, uh, uh, willing to go public and acknowledge that even he couldn't know for certain what would happen of the Thessalonian church. Folks, there, there's a whole new way to respond when people say that they've given their life to follow Christ. Like Paul, you could say, we'll see. We'll see. Because the truer test of a Christian is whether they can persevere through trials when they enter into the furnace of testing. James 1 verse 12 states, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life 
which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, which we recently studied in adult Bible class, Jesus says nearly the identical thing to the church in Smyrna. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. And Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Is it worth it? Oh, it's worth it. Persevere no matter what your circumstances are. Persevere in Christ. Don't be confused. Um, Theologically, Paul knows, he understands that the elect will persevere. The problem is he doesn't know exactly who they are. And he desperately wanted to learn whether Thessalonica had persevered. And so he sends Timothy. He sends young Timothy hoping that that he could help strengthen them somehow. Help them to persevere encourage them in their faith. Folks, this passage exposes one of the deepest mysteries that we as Christians have to fathom. Since this very same Paul is supremely confident uh, when writing the Ephesians in another letter uh, that we are predestined according to God's choice, And and since this same Paul declares in unequivocal terms in Romans chapter 9 that God chose Jacob over Esau, and where he quotes God as speaking to Moses saying this, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, Romans 9.16, salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy. Think of that confidence that Paul has in the elect. Yet still he remains passionately concerned, passionately concerned, that the Thessalonians prove out. And he wants to be used by God as an instrument in proving them out. And he wants all other Christians to engage in this same work of strengthening and encouraging one another in the faith. And all of this assures the spiritual machinery that God employs. The machinery that God employs in both salvation and in sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ. They're not humanly passive. Follow me? They're not humanly passive. Our spirits must actively engage in the process of sanctification. Or we have proven that we are not new creatures in Christ. If you're familiar with a a line of theological thought... It's referred to as hyper-Calvinism. Anybody heard that term before? Hyper-Calvinism. It's an intellectual argument 
that suggests, this is just simplest terms, that God's kingdom doesn't really rely on what we do. And that God will accomplish His redeeming work uh, if He does uh, independent even of the efforts of man. Folks, that is an unscriptural theology that, you, that cannot be reconciled to Scripture. Can't be. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I trust He's going to work His purposes And the reality is that God's sovereignty employs the efforts of man. God's sovereignty employs the efforts of man to achieve His good purposes. We've got to engage. Folks, therefore, we we can't just recline on the sofa. And those who embrace a scriptural defense of Calvinism, a scriptural Calvinism, recognize we're not the frozen chosen. Right? We're not. we got to get after it out there. And God's Spirit, by God's Spirit, we are made very passionate about the expansion of God's kingdom, the proclamation of the Gospel, forgiveness of sins made through Christ. And that we all do as our, Lord, our Lord's brother Jude warns. We contend very earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. That sound passive? That's not passive. We fight for the faith. We defend what belongs to God. We protect His church. We encourage one another. We stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And it's for this reason, when Paul and Silas are hindered from returning to Thessalonica, uh, they determine, they decide that we're going to have to hang back here in Athens. They're going to instead send Timothy. Timothy, whom they identify in verse 2 as our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. I can't come, says Paul, but we're sending Timothy. He's heading your way. He's our goodwill ambassador. He's going to do the work we can't do. And as I relayed last week, I think this is probably a pretty good indication uh, there remains an active warrant out for the arrest of Paul and Silas in the city of Thessalonica. I could be wrong, but if that is accurate, the Jews in the synagogue are still angry over the fact that Paul and Silas came to town and, and stole a lot of their church people, synagogue people, and, and a prominent and probably wealthy people, Gentiles and Jews, and they were persuaded by the Gospel to join Paul and Silas, and we've already studied before, that's when the big uproar in Thessalonica happened. It was when the Jews in the synagogue saw that these people were trusting in Christ as Savior. So so they still have an APB out on Paul and Silas. They're watching for them. They they saw Paul teaching in their synagogue for three Sundays, we're told, right? They know what he looks like. 
They know what he and Paulus, uh, uh, Silas look like, um, so they're watching out for him. Folks, Satan employs natural, physical means to thwart the gospel of the kingdom. He employs natural means, physical means. We should never come to the conclusion that when Paul says back in chapter 2 and in verse 18 that, that Satan hindered us from going to Thessalonica, that, that, that Satan threw up some kind of Star Trek force field, you know? And Paul and Silas are like, oh man, I, I can't get through. It must, be, it must be Satan. That's watching too much Harry Potter and Hobbit. There's no force field they were bumping into. It's just religious mysticism. But think about it. How many times when you've seen someone and you've got a gospel tract, you're like, I'm going to go witness to, the, to this person. I'm standing over there, I'm going to go up and talk to him about Christ. And then you hit a force field. No, that's not the way the Satan works. Spiritual warfare, folks, is a battle over the soul and the mind. It manifests itself normally in a natural dimension. This is why Christians aren't known for casting spells. But harnessing the physical dimension, we rely on the scriptural wisdom, the knowledge that according to 12, uh, Romans 12 verse 2, has the capacity to transform hearts through the renewing of mind where our battle is. It's in the mind. And preaching the Word, it's a very spiritual exercise that manifests itself in the natural physical dimension. People attend. People read. People hear. They physically gather together. We visually see it. We audibly hear it. And Satan was quite confident here. Satan was pretty confident he had won a spiritual battle by orchestrating events that prevented Paul and Silas from physically returning to Thessalonica. Satan thought, yeah, I orchestrated this pretty well. The, uh, the city's on our side. they got a warrant out for them or whatever else the hindrance is. And, and I kind of worked this out nicely. I'm keeping the Apostle Paul and Silas from coming back from physically returning. But folks, he suffered a humiliating defeat. He didn't win the battle at all. In fact, he, he loses the war miserably here. Because this is Paul's second missionary journey. And it's Timothy's first. And Paul and Silas are, are out, but Timothy is now tagged in. And there isn't any warrant or any other hindrance on Timothy. He's the one now who is tagged in. Nothing's restraining him from going to Thessalonica. And after some preparation by, by Paul and Silas in Athens, they dispatch young Timothy. They were going to send Timothy now, since we can't go back. He's going to handle it. Folks, I imagine what Timothy must have thought. He was a young guy at this point. Listen up, young people. Timothy was a young guy at this point. His first missionary journey. 
And I imagine as many young men and women think today that Timothy is probably thinking, no. No, he might have protested. Say, not me. I, I don't know what to do. Paul told him, yeah, well, you got a short time to figure it out. We're going to send you. You're going to go back to Thessalonica when we can't. Paul and Silas could have said, you've listened to us long enough. You've heard the message that we preach. You know what the Bible says. You've heard the Gospel. You've seen the power of the Gospel. You've seen what we do and how we do it. And Timothy, it's time for you to pack up your own study Bible and get out there and do it. You've watched us long enough. Here, take with you uh, part of the scroll of Isaiah, Paul might have said. I've circled a, a few spots in red that assure that, that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah uh, given to Israel. You've heard us talk about this, Timothy. Go out there, pray with the church, strengthen them, encourage them, teach them, love them. Just like you've seen us love as well. If there's anything you don't understand, <laughs> don't just make it up. Ask later for clarification. Folks, preaching the Gospel and teaching the Bible at its, at its root, at its most basic form, uh, is no more difficult than what Albert Moeller has described as washing your hair. Washing your hair. Albert Moeller, Albert Moeller president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Wash, rinse, repeat. Read the text. Explain the text. Repeat. Read the text. Explain the text. Repeat. Folks, ministry isn't rocket science. Restrained, uh, retained for a few uh, select people. And here the devil has placed himself boy, in a world of hurt. Because God has thwarted Satan's plan by allowing circumstances that are getting a younger generation involved. And Timothy begins with a little short-term mission trip and includes a little reconnaissance to see how the church is doing over there. And they tell him, bring back the report. Tell us how that church is doing, Timothy. And I can imagine Timothy probably didn't want to go alone. Think back of the first time that you did ministry work and they sent you out alone. Oh, that's tough. But boy, he experienced some serious growth being sent out by himself, forced to do something on his own. All Timothy has to remember at this point is what Paul said to that church in Corinth. He says, It is required of the Lord's steward that one be found trustworthy. It is required of the Lord's steward, steward be, that one be found trustworthy. That's it. Be trustworthy. And you'll find as you progress in reading the book of Acts, and especially in Paul's epistles to the churches, uh, after eventually gaining some experience, this same Timothy becomes a major influence in the churches. 
And much later when Ephesus, the church in Ephesus falls under spiritual attack, the original group of elders there, they, they either leave or apostatize or die. We don't know. But when they're out of the picture, Satan tries to take, <laughs> take control of that church. And it's then when Paul sends this same Timothy to the church in Ephesus to serve as the pastor of the church. It's through the changing course of events which we receive two letters written by Paul to Timothy. We call them pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy. And once again, at a time when Satan thinks that he's gained control of a church in Ephesus. Having distracted Paul with other issues, in fact, at one letter, Paul's in jail. Satan probably thinks he won there too. It's then when God replies saying, yeah, do you remember my son Timothy? He's coming. He's coming. And we're going to hear a little more about Timothy next week. Paul sent him to fight for the church later on in Ephesus. By the time the Apostle John comes on later on the scene, uh, that church is doing pretty well. And next week, we're going to see in verse 6, it describes Timothy's return from Thessalonica. And Paul learns through all of their affliction and all of their pain and in all of their sorrows and all of their tears, Timothy comes back and says, that church is doing pretty good. They're standing strong. But folks, it's through challenging circumstances. Challenging circumstances that God begins to prepare and shape a new generation of church leaders that will be recognized by the church as being faithful to lead the next generation. Boy, it stinks being Satan. He's learned how to inflict a lot of pain and sorrow on God's people and Christ's church. But he's never won a battle in all his life. And God's not about to stand, uh, stand by and start letting him now. Christ's church will survive. Who's in?